Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Bosch, the police procedural starring Titus Welver as LA police detective Harry Bosch. The Amazon Prime series is dropping its seventh and final season tomorrow in full. Eight episodes will be available for immediate binging. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 97%. And what's interesting is that the score for season one was 83%, the seasons two through six all come in at 100%. This is one of my favorite shows, and we've assembled a great panel of guests to discuss it. First, Frank Tignini, old friend. You were the key second AD for season one and the unit production manager for seasons two through six. Welcome back to Below the Line. Thank you for having me back. Happy to be here. Glad you're here as well, Frank. Next, Patrick Cady, you've rotated as one of the directors of photography for all seven seasons, and you've directed six episodes as well. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Next, Trey Batchelor, you joined at the end of the first season as a first AD and stuck around for the balance of the show. You also directed an episode in season six. Welcome. Thank you. And then our final chair, Robert Paulson, you've been the location manager for all seven seasons. That's correct. Every single episode. <laughs> Unlike some of the people in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks who are not aware, Bosch uses a rotating system for both the director of photography and the first AD. So Patrick and Trey can only speak to every other episode. Frank, of course, you can speak to all the episodes, but you're only on you know set for that first season, right? As UPM, you're one of those office yeah. UPMs, right? Like you're sitting back in the office and not really involved well, in what's I, going on anymore. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, well, I got a team like these guys. I didn't have to do much. So I just was like, oh, Trey, Patrick, and Robert, I'll sit in my office, watch movie stuff like that. They handled everything else. It was perfect. So. It's well, a guys, good movie selection. It's true. <laughs> well, guys, excited to have you guys all here today. Let's go back to the beginning of the show. Quick note for listeners, this is a spoiler warning for seasons one through six. I came in late myself, and so I wasn't aware at the time, but Amazon actually did just the pilot and then got audience feedback before committing to that first season. Now, as I understand it, none of you worked the pilot. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. But then the show comes back for a full season, actually does some reshoots on the pilot. There's some recasting, as I'm aware, and maybe some other things. They add some scenes or there's some changes as well. Was there much of the crew in any department that came from the pilot into the rest of the show? And where did season one kind of go from there for you guys? I think the accounting department was the only ones that rolled over. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was the DP on those first, I guess, episodes two and three of that season. And we ended up, I think that's how we did it, right, Frankie? We did yeah. two. Oh, yeah. And then, and we reshot a quarter maybe of the pilot because of recasting. Yeah, when we came back for to shoot the series, we did episodes two and three together, as well as like four or five additional days of um, reshoots for the pilot. And then we did episodes, I think, five and six together. And then after that, we did one episode at a time. Um, it was it was a little odd and disjointed. A lot of it was to group uh, locations together. I'm sure as we get into it, we had a lot of uh, interesting locations, some stuff that we had to like almost direct hit when we were able to get to them. So logistically it became a thing, but first season was a lot of uh, that it was, it was a learning experience as to how we would move around the city over the next six, six, seven years. So. so what I think is one of the interesting aspects of this show is that it's not a simple police procedure where each episode is its own case. Rather, each season is based on a couple of Michael Connolly's books and they're sort of tied and, and woven together so that over the course of a season, the characters are going to change and, and there's going to be evolution, but it's really going to be a full story and there's going to be a full end before we move on. In that first season, though, you're really establishing 
the language of the show, the approach. LA is a huge part of it. Tell me more about that first season and how things came together for those of you who were there. Well, I, I know when I interviewed for the job, it was with another, we didn't interview together, but it was, a, it was me and this other cinematographer, Paul Summers, and we had worked on another show before and we met on Cold Case. And I think I got the job pretty quickly because I started talking about the French Connection right away. And those films from the 70s were a real determiner on the look of the show. They really wanted the show to feel gritty and, and raw like the French Connection we talked a lot about handheld and, and just being really in all the environments. And so we started talking about the city as a location right away. And I, I showed digital stills. I didn't even have dailies of a show I had just shot previously in Chicago where we used that same approach where we used a lot of the existing lighting in the city. And, and I think for Peter Jan Brugge as the producer and for Michael and uh, Eric Overmeyer, that was really attractive. And so that was where I started in thinking about the show. Um, I'm sure Robert had already gotten the, <laughs> and, and I know the other thing that happened really early for me was getting introduced to Eric's idea of things being very real. So the police set that was being built when I first walked through it with Chester, our production designer, I suggested the idea of transom windows in one part of the bullpen. They're, they're not there. You know, if you watch the show, they're not there. And, uh, and he was like, well, what, why do you want those? I said, well, then I can indicate time of day pretty easily. I can fake sunlight or nighttime. They could be frosted. It doesn't have to create a lot of trouble, but it would help us sell time of day inside this room quickly. When we see it, we'll know. And he said, yeah, but there's no windows in the real precinct. And I said, I don't care what's in the real precinct. And then, and then we were looking when it was getting dressed, there's this main hallway that goes into the bullpen and there was a soda machine and a and a shoeshine stand right in the way of a, a sight line that would let you do long lenses, seeing people in the bullpen walking towards you. And I, I turned to Chester and said, why, why is that there? Like we can move that, right? It could go on the other side. Well, that's where it is in the real place. And I didn't, I really, I, I couldn't get it. I was like, why on earth are we going to lock ourselves to this real location that we're never going to be in? And they had been in it on the pilot, but I knew that no audience having been involved in other shows, the changes you can make from houses and stuff are, it's astronomical. But then I realized as the show went on, in, even in further seasons, I started realizing the genius of that approach, even though it makes us crazy on the physical production and sometimes, is as soon as you don't even trim any of those corners, you don't smooth any of those rough edges, everything really feels very real. Everything really feels like you're actually there. So even if you build the set, the audience never questions what's a set or what's location because you're going to these locations that are sometimes, and first look, you look at it as a team and you go, why are we here? This is unfilmable. But it turns out, well, that's, that's the holding cell that people are put in before they go into the courtroom. So we're going to shoot in one of those. <laughs> and you're like, okay, it's full of plexiglass and reflections and I'm going to just suck it up and here we go. And I don't know, Robert, like what you were hearing from Eric, but you know, for, I know for, for Chester, he said, well, this is what, how Eric did everything on, on um, the previous show that he worked on him with. And this is just what we did. And it became the way we approached all the locations. The, the Hollywood police station is an interesting one because we did build that like to the inch. We would go there and shoot in the parking lot the first season and uh, we never filmed inside. And there was one time it was the second season, even as a location manager, I hadn't gone inside and the sergeant said, oh, we'll just cut through the back and go through the front. 
I said, oh, that's great. And we started walking through and I finally saw for the first time I knew where to go. I knew where to turn left, where to turn right, because I've been on our stage set so many times. But it is a place we try to be exacting and uh, with our locations. First time I had to use the restroom inside the precinct, I knew where it was because it's in the same place. <laughs> exactly. on the it became like almost the bane of our existence, though, that that attention to like locations that we had, because we, you know, a lot of it stems from the books. If you read Michael Connolly's books, when he's describing a certain location or like just how Bosch would travel in the books from like one location to the next, he's taking the right streets, he's turning, he's making the right lefts and rights. Our producers all were like, okay, well, we're going to do that. And, you know, much to all of us like going, oh, great. You know what I mean? So like if, if Bosch is if you know in season five or six i think when ellen wish was killed at, at, at um, uh, the farmer's market they're like okay we're gonna kill her at the farmer's market we're like okay mm-hmm. that's hard it's a very logistically hard place to film there's lots of people there they don't they're not very filming friendly um we filmed at the real morgue like oh it's got to be the real morgue and i think we're the last mm-hmm. show ever to film at the real morgue because yeah. there's a lot of you know we actually had people coming out of the freezers where there's countless dead bodies just because it was like the real, we wanted to have that, that realism. All our police locations were real ones. I think we had a, a place in Tehachapi. We drove two hours to Tehachapi just to, to film outside of it. So the logistics of that were really hard, especially putting a, a eight to nine day schedule together. When you got to travel all over the city, if the script reads that they were in, you know, Beverly Hills, we would go find a place in Beverly Hills. If they were, it just, so, and, you know, when you're building schedules and you take a script, you want to break it down by locations. You want to find groups, groupings and your anchors and stuff like that. Well, when you got a script that takes you all the way from Orange County, all the way to Santa Clarita, you got to make this traveling circus as well as fit in stage stuff there. It becomes almost like a, a Sisyphean task to do it all because, we, you know, and we stuck to our guns. And I, I will give like Peter Yan as much as, and he'll probably listen to this, we love him to death and he drove us crazy. He stuck to his guns and he said, this is what we've done since season one. This is how we're going to do it. We might have, you know, persuaded him a few times to cheat here and there, but it was always a minor cheat. But he pushed us and definitely Robert and his team to get us to these like real places. The locations had to be like exact. It was a monumental task. Is The show, the logistics of the show was probably by far our hardest task, I think. And then, you know, you're, you're play, putting that and Trey and Patrick can speak to this as, as directors of our show. We've now then given them this massive schedule to do sometimes nine, 10 pages in a day. As the producer, I didn't let them shoot long either. So they, they're they like, now you got to move three times a day. You got to shoot for, you know, eight to nine pages a day with all these big sequences and we got to make our day. So it was, it was, uh, you know, everyone was kind of getting it from all over the place, but we did it. We're seven, seven seasons through here. So. Well, building on the locations, what was interesting is that Michael has written all these books and he has real police technical advisors. So we've had Rick Jackson, who's a famous RHD detective that started with him and then Tim Marshall was his real partner in life and then came into the fold with Michael and then uh, Mitzi uh, Roberts came in as well. So it's interesting just talking about the police station there. So I did one episode the first season, then second, third season. And every time we went over there, it was kind of precarious in the position that it's an active police station so that we shot mainly in the parking lot, but a lot of times, you know, they would have a call or something or, you know, we have to go inside. And so when we first went there, the police kind of like treated us like, here, these guys are in our way again. And then by season <laughs> four, five, and six, they actually were welcoming us. And it was hilarious because 
probably was it around season three, Robert, that they started coming taking tours yeah. on the stage of the police station. So it was an interesting switch is that it began with, uh, we don't want these guys here to be like, oh, this is cool. Let's go visit their stage. And then when we come over, like we would walk in the bullpen, I think it was season six, they were all turned around and were talking to us at the real Hollywood police station. So the detail to locations is really important, but the detail to all the police work is really important because they said we were one of the few shows that actually got the locations, the police, the technical aspect, uh, the procedures all correct. So for me, it was interesting to see it grow from season one to season, and, and even going on to season, uh, the new spinoff, just going back over there. And they're all kind of excited to see us because they were a little disappointed that you know it was our last series, but now we've gone back over and we'll do a couple scenes in the Bosch spinoff and they're happy to see us again. We're going to talk more about uh, season seven and the spinoff that's coming. Right? But uh, Trey, what you bring up, I think it's a very interesting sort of development of the show where, again, at first, I think you're going to be typical filming in the way, but over time. And from what you're saying, I think the attention to realism, both in the locations and also in the police procedures themselves, has sold you to the people that, that the show is about. Now they're actually welcoming you as putting out a an image of the show that they both uh, appreciate and like. What other changes over the seasons did you guys notice? Another, what other developments were there, or what might have gotten easier in doing this work? Uh, I can say the Bosch House. The, one of our biggest locations is the Bosch House. In season one, you know, it's this little house that's on a cliff that has a great view, and it's a you know, it's well known in the book. It's and uh, um, we just said, how are we going to shoot this? You know, we have all these big trucks and how are we going to get the equipment up there? And we would have meetings upon meetings to get up there. And we were going to film at one time for three episodes and do a lot of cross-boarding. Um, and that first season, we kind of muddled through with different kind of plans. And then as the seasons progressed, we, the trucks got smaller. We became a company that wasn't 48 footers. We were 10 tons and shorty 40s and things like that. And then it got to the point literally that, oh, I'd look at a schedule and say, oh, the Bosch house. Okay, cool. That's going to be easy on that Friday um, because I know how to do that. And all the neighbors knew us. And oddly enough, uh, that became a very easy location over seven seasons. And I think that's part of it. As we went on, we learned what's the best way to move around the city as efficiently as we could. You know, first season, you do the normal things. Like Robert was saying, you have the big trucks, you have all these things. And and we found ourselves getting caught getting into some of these uh, smaller places. There was also... The harder part, as we moved on, less and less parking became available. Downtown got a little bigger. There was Joe's parking lots everywhere 10, 15 years ago. Now you'd be lucky if you find one, you know. And so we had to get smaller. And we had an amazing crew like Derek Corliss and, and um, Jason Andrew, our, our gaffer and our key grip. They then season two would come to us and say, hey, and this is rare because a lot of Grip Electric guys, they just want all their stuff, but these guys knew that they needed to strip down, right? So they would talk with Patrick and they would talk with Paul or they would talk with Mick D, who was our one of our DPs. And then they would all speak and say, okay, we're going to strip stuff down. We're going to get into smaller trucks so we can move quicker. Actually, we split up the electric trucks so we could piggyback, which was a great idea that they came up with. So that it was like, this small one's going to go here, this one, because we, without a doubt, we would move three times a day and that's not even an exaggeration. And sometimes like, 20 to 45 minute company moves. It was one of those things when you move in a movie, in the movie business, technically, you got to load up the trucks, move, then unload the trucks, then get set up. You lose that time, right? And so we had to go, what can we do to make up that time? So we'd actually have multiple trucks and we would split up the packages and they would go, this truck's going to go over here. It was a little harder with our camera truck. And we actually at one point had this 
yacht like thing for the camera the trip. Whale. We called we called it the whale, and we kept fighting. We had to get this, and, and that the was camera horrible. Guys were like, we're, we're going to streamline <laughs> this, and we got a smaller truck. I don't know how they somehow got this NASCAR like uh, mechanics vehicle to, to be the, but uh, we fixed that pretty quickly. But being able to hit piggyback and, and move quicker because we wanted to give more times because we were shooting a lot of scenes a day. Give more time for our our, um, our directors and our cast to shoot the scenes and um, and get the proper coverage. And we being real, uh, the reality of things, we had we had people, you know, we, Peter Jan-Bruger, Henry Bastin, our producers, they're big fans of kind of Peter produced Heat. So that's like the typical, the, the everything everyone looks to when it comes to, to a lot of cop procedurals, anything Michael Mannish, right? It's that kind of, uh, so we had this like high bar and standard to, to try to live up to, to at least that type of energy, that type of uh, that realism. You know, Michael Mann, when he, the cast is flying in an airplane, he actually takes them up and fly them in the airplane, which we, we would do too, stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like, it just, it was just pushing us and pushing us. So we had a good enough group uh, that they all thought, which was awesome. Everyone just worked together to get us where we needed to go. Like I know that they would go to our first ADs and they would say, hey, what don't we need? Cause I'll start moving it. I'll start moving it. Every, it's rare that you get a group that is so cohesively can move. We, we had the same departments. Uh, I can't speak to season seven. I didn't do that, but I know one through six, the same groups came back every every year, you know, except for our prop department. For some reason, we kept having to get a new prop department every year. I'm not <laughs> sure what that was. That was like the, the Albatross was the prop department. We, they, they changed every year for some reason. And to be fair, it was a really hard prop show too, you know, so. But also, Frank, I think it was the crew. We started off with the key ones, but the, even the crew members evolved over time and some yeah. some left because they didn't like the pace of the show and the move and we kind of you know kept evolving the crew because you have to have a mindset when you come yeah. to work it's not a stage show it's not a feature you need we, danny brown <laughs> yeah and and people evolved which was again to frankie and the producers bringing in the right people to do that when when i think of something that epitomizes the show. I think it's the way we sh ended up shooting cars. Shooting cars is a normal, normally a nightmare. Producers, directors, no one wants to go on a trailer. You want to figure out some way to do it where you stay on stage, right? Because how do you make any company move or any technical change the same as just rolling from one set to another set on a stage? Because that's to keep your schedule. You have to think that way. And we had this issue come up in, what is it, season two or three, where two, where Maddie was going to start driving. Yeah. And she really just had gotten her license. And so we ended up going, and this is the smart producing thing. We ended up going with the pod, what we call the pod car, which is she isn't driving the car. There's a stunt driver on the roof of the car and the special rig driving the car. As soon as that happens, now you can just hard rig three cameras anywhere you want on the car. No one needs to see, the cast doesn't need to see. But now you can go down the narrow streets of the Hollywood Hills. Everything feels very real because the actors are in the car. The actors are at the steering wheel at all the bumps of the road. You feel in the camera and everything. And then you add Jason Andrew and Danny Brown, our, who eventually became our A-camera first AC and our key grip. And they start doing things like, oh, you know, if our, if our big video cart is lower, we can just roll it into a van as the follow van. And you start making all these little changes in your overall approach so that when you go from stage to rolling down a street, doing a big scene with three cameras on a car, you should be able to go from one to the other in 20 minutes, which is the same as rolling in or half an hour, same as rolling in, rehearsing and starting a scene on set. As soon as you achieve that, 
you're winning, but it, you need everyone involved. If you have one person being like, oh, all right, we're going on the car and they start dragging their ass on doing that, you're screwed. So you, you need everyone to be committed to it. And you need everyone thinking it's, I always say it's that extra 5%. That's the hardest 5% to find where that extra bit of work beyond being very good at your job to being indispensable at your job is that extra 5% of work, which is the hardest part. But when you have someone like the crew that we accumulated over the seasons was ready to do that and enjoyed doing that, knew that they weren't going to be bored at work. Well, and driving was such an integral part of the show. Anyone that has seen it sees that we Bosch travels so much and not even just Bosch. You got to go with Jay Edgar and you go with all these different characters. And again, as Patrick said, once Maddie started driving, it, driving, it became, Oh, how do we do this? We can't have a 16 year old drive our camera operator in the back of the car in LA traffic. As we all know, it's hard enough to drive when you don't have a camera in there. Um, so the pod device became such a big tool for us. And especially the traveling that we do, we spent countless days standing on street corners charting paths to you know roberts the grids he would have to get us in order to drive and it, and it couldn't just be a square because like i go back to the realism that was tasked upon us you know it's like if they're driving from los angeles you know all hollywood out to, to chatsworth we had to travel streets that could actually get us there and so it was it was a logistic and just being able to be on that pod car and we had this great pod car driver conchnell uh, he was like the guy. He, he was also Titus's stunt double. Um, and Alex Daniels, our, our uh, stunt coordinator, the two of them just, we, they, they, you know, put the trust in them to drive these cars where we needed to, needed to get and we could travel and just blow through scenes. And I know Titus really loved it. He's not a good driver. He's going to listen to this. I'm going to tell him he's not a good driver. <laughs> He'll be the first to tell him. Um, but it's also hard for him. You know, he's on the phone. He's talking on the phone. He's acting in scenes. They're driving. It's all this stuff. It's just, I'm sure it was very liberating for them as well. Um, I mean, we had to do it so he could back out of spaces because he's that bad of a driver. But other than that, it was fine. You know, he, he couldn't uh, parallel park. Could, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so but I think Robert was really uh, an integral part in that because not only permitting and doing stuff, but uh, Robert had a great relationship with our officers, which again, Kenny and um, Tim, yeah. so I'll let Robert, Robert's worked with them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have, uh, we work with uh, retired and mostly use retired LAPD sometimes to set security, but we like, not security, I'm sorry, for driving shots and things like that. Uh, but uh, um, we use active duty guys because they carry more of the authority of the LAPD. And we have two guys of, uh, with Tim Crabtree and Ken Snowden that are just great. And they, talk to Trey and Trey says, here's what we need to do. And they're able to almost always make it happen. And they perform some magic in Koreatown, you know, on a busy Friday night when we had, you know, some driving shots and we just sort of showed up and, and, and did some shots. And, and to saying what Frankie was saying, is like, I, I don't recall maybe a handful of times of that, of us saying, let's shoot this street because it looks like it would be on the way to that location. It's always, well, you know, what streets would we be taking? And, and just recently on the show where we're going now, um, there was a big argument over whether we would go eastbound or westbound over the Vincent Thomas Bridge to get to a certain location um, coming from that. So those were the kind of discussions we have, which is makes it interesting, more interesting to show all in all. So I want to ask a, a little deeper question on this sort of idea of the realism, because on a TV budget and schedule, I could see, yes, we're going to follow that. We're going to catch a lot of realism because we're sticking very much to what, what's actually happening. But then it becomes a talking point and there really is the logistical challenges of just getting it done. But you guys have gone beyond that in the sense that when I watch the show, I do 
feel like I'm in LA and not in a way that's distracting from the story, but it very much breathes and goes to the next level that there must also be an intention beyond just being real that you want to feature that or you want that to, to be a character in the show. First and foremost, I think there's a lot of prep put into it. There's a lot of thought and it's back to what Frankie was saying. We have a Pirion Bruger who you know, starts with Robert and Paul locations and they start in Chester and they do a lot of research and they look at a lot of locations. And then I think the mantra is don't ever change the look of the city, you know, so we try to enhance that. And one of the interesting things, which Patrick can talk to is when we started, it was a lot less LED lights in the, in the city. And then they started going to LEDs and even, and then the camera started getting, you know, you know, from 2k to 4k, then 8k. So, to answer your question, there's a lot of prep put into it for preparing for actors doing, going to shooting range or training and stuff like that. And then a lot of prep work as far as picking locations and then making those loca locations look real. Most TV shows don't put this much thought in before you actually go, you know, you'll do as much as you can, but I think there's so much thought put in before we even start pre-production is a key. And then uh, Patrick can probably speak to the lighting and the, just the changes that's gone on. The big thing that no one thinks about that helps sell it all the time is that we don't do what I call illustrated radio, where you do one big wide shot that sells where you are, and then you jam into a close-up tighter than anyone sees anyone on Zoom for the rest of the scene, which happens all the time. Since television's a writer's-based medium, a lot of times writers like seeing all their words as if they're the most important words. And so they end up seeing everything in close-up. And the problem with that is now when you're cutting a scene, where do you go when you really want to emphasize someone's emotional response or line? And Eric is really, really, Eric Overmeyer, the showrunner, is really, really smart in that he hates that kind of close-up unless it's really warranted. So the funny thing is, as a cinematographer and an AD, Trey and I would have to explain to directors that it's okay that the closest you get to anyone is like a medium-wide shot for most of the scenes until you really need this other thing. And then if you combine that to get geeky, if you combine that with a realistic stop, so like a four or five, six, you just start seeing the environments on top of everyone all the time. And we would get in trouble too if we oversold the location. Like if we bend into a pretzel to see the Hollywood sign, that shot would not get used. If the Hollywood sign just happens to be there, the shot will get used. So Eric has a real aesthetic of, because he's originally a playwright of the cast of characters come into the scene, they perform their scene, you stay with the characters and then they leave the scene or you leave the scene as early as possible. And if you do that in medium shots, instead of close-ups, you see where you are all the time. And if you don't work too hard at trying to get the location featured, you just end up in it all the time. And I think that's the intangibles that make that, that work is the size of the frames that we're often shooting people in. Speaking to the location aspect of it, um, Paul Schreiber, who's the other location manager on the show, and pretty much he focuses on the scouting almost solely, um, would attest to this, that we tend to shoot the L.A. that people who live in L.A. see and not the shows that say, hey, this is an L.A. show. Look at the palm trees. We're at the Santa Monica Pier and every, everything. Like that. That's not to say we don't look to Michael Conley's books, who picks and chooses specific locations that are iconic, and they do become part of the story but we tend to be in alleyways or houses. Uh, one of my favorite locations is where Waits in season one was pulled over and initially yeah. arrested. 
I mean, it was just, heck. We, had to, we had to shoot it twice, <laughs> but yes. uh, it was a heck of a location, but it was just great. It's like, people don't see that area of Los Angeles and they don't see the parts of Koreatown that we go to, or even downtown as you know, there were seasons like Angel's Flight season four, where, you know, we shot Angel's Flight and, and built more, but that's sort of speaking to the history of Los Angeles and the tunnels and the red car line. And it was very intricate to the story. But one of my favorite things about this is that we are shooting like I said, locations that people in LA go, oh, that's where I get my coffee or, oh, that's, you know, that's my, my sandwich shop and not, oh, that's, you know, Rodeo Drive. Angel's flight had been closed down for years and it was just opening up and somehow because of Michael Connolly's relationship, I mean, we were the first people to actually film it even before like the public got to see it. Yeah, it hadn't even opened for the public yet. They were going to have a big grand opening, but, you know, Michael has a lot of, Michael Connolly has a lot of, um, uh, I don't want to call it connections because, but he's just got a lot of relationships, fans. fans and relationships because his, you know, LA is such a character in his books and he writes about the place. It goes to, to, to back to the locations thing. We never changed the name on any place. We, we used the names of every location we went to. And I think this goes to your question too, Robert, is that the reason it feels so real and so everything is because of the attention, the detail to travel in the right places that if we're in Sherman Oaks, we're in Sherman Oaks and, to go. And I, I think it was uh, Trey that said it. We did cater to, we wanted to make sure that if you were from California, from Los Angeles, you knew that we were going in the right places or we were traveling in the right directions, which did cause arguments amongst us and the, the, the other producers. Cause we're like, no one in Ohio gives a shit like, you know, <laughs> but then someone would counter, but the person who in Burbank does. And we're like, okay, you know what I mean? So we catch ourselves. Cause sometimes we're just like, this is going to be too hard, but we all did it. Like every one of us at some point was like, why don't we just do this? And then someone would counter. And then I was like, wait, two seconds ago, you were arguing not to do it this way either. But then we all, because it comes back to us all going, this is the right way to do it. People comment on this. So if we start compromising in order to make it easier for us, then we're going to do a disservice to the show we're trying to make. Cause that's, that's not what it is. And, and getting into these places, like I go back to the morgue, like no one ever filmed at the morgue again after we did. Not, not because we had a bad experience, periods but because it was like we were i don't know that anyone filmed it in it prior either it's one of those things where we were able to kind of get in and do things that other people were i mean there's just a and we'd also have to look and i know this was hard for robert and paul just in in chester uh kaczynski our production designer of just each season going someplace new and featuring some part of, of la because the la is there's a reason why harry bosch lives in a house overlooking la because la is a character in the story something that was like our mantra it was like the ethos of the show we would do things and and which i thought was cool because we would every year we would just talk cameras we talked cameras with patrick and whoever and i don't want to say who we had multiple patrick was our consistent we did have other you know cinematographers come in i think michael mcdonough was our one that stood with us the most uh, as as patrick's counterpart but we would do a lot of things and peter Yan was really big on this about like testing sensors because we did a lot of night filming just whatever we could do to make sure we see we see outside of the cast you know we we love our cast that we'll talk about them i'm sure at some point here but our biggest thing is we want titus's face in the frame but we want to see what's behind him we want to know what's we want to see the city behind him and it goes to what trey was saying that the lights changed in the city you know you can't photograph the city like you did 
back in the day, you know, back in the seventies, all the, everything's like, you know, power, what is it? The, the, you know, energy saving stuff now, and you get a different look. So boring. It's all one color. Exactly. (laughs) But each year we would, we would go out and one night it would always fun. It'd be Patrick and us. And we'd go and we'd just take the camera and we would just go different, like the angels fight night, for instance. And we just go see what it looks like at night. How do we properly capture that? We go to the Bradbury building and film it all this prior, just so that we make sure that, that the detail of the city and of the locations can be seen as well as, you know, Titus and his, you know, his, his, his eyes. It was a, uh, it was a fun, that was a definitely a fun part of it. Most people don't like doing camera tests, but we did fun ones and stuff like that. Well, that's a top down decision too, to spend the money to actually go to the location and test on the location instead of shooting charts at Panavision, you know, yeah. to, to go out at the Hollywood sign and look out into with Peter Yan and, and really shoot as if you're shooting scenes for the first episode, that's not common, but it should be. It's certainly common in a feature. You would do that in a, in a feature of a certain scale. But I know for me, this was the first TV show where we did that all the time or the tests in the tunnels, like really extensive tests that I know drove everyone crazy to schedule and get the gear for and crew up for. And and then as soon as you're done shooting them, you're like, well, that was absolutely worth it because it's going to make yeah. us faster on the day. Bringing this back to your point full circle, that's in the details. That is the prep. That's the long range thinking, you know, like, let's go out, take a look at it. Patrick and I did the bank shootout and we rehearsed that. And Frankie, we went out and scouted. We, we did a lot of prep work to make that work. And it was a huge shootout. And it's still, I guess, you know, people talk about today is one of the better TV shootouts, but that was a lot of prep work. I mean, Frankie can attest to that. Yeah. So it, it's, again, getting stunts, it's doing camera tests, figuring out time of day, when to shoot stuff, make it look good. Yeah, and also with Robert, getting all these locations, because sometimes, you know, we do things where guns come out during a rehearsal or you're doing speeding cars, and um, yeah. that's the stuff Robert doesn't like to hear until we lock the location <laughs> down, because yeah. they might not want us to come back for that location. Yeah, we had, yeah, it was like two seasons ago. It was kind of fun. I was just standing around and then I were doing a rehearsal at a location and it was the, it involved some guns. I wasn't aware that rubber guns were coming out. And uh, I just happened to see this kid like who's skateboarding along and he ducked down behind a car instead of crawling along. I'm like, well, what's going on? What's going on? He's like, this guy's, they're just pulled out guns. I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a rehearsal. It was permitted for that. I just wasn't aware. <laughs> what, what what scene was that? That was uh, for the uh, uh, the guys uh, in Northridge. The uh, um, oh, those, we were doing those, the sovereigns. Those right, yeah, the sovereigns. The yeah, sovereigns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank God the, that was shootout. E- shootout that was scene e- for that. E- that's Ian did that. That was Ian's episode. Yeah. Thank you. That was Ian. <laughs> yeah, it was Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and so I told him, listen, they're saying bang, bang, bang. So that's usually bad guys don't say bang, bang. <laughs> You know, in talking about specific scenes, I, I, I recall that in season five, when Bosch goes undercover, where'd you guys film that stuff? Chester in our art department um, did an amazing job building a compound out in Agua Dulce, which um, we used as the Salton Sea. And then we actually went to the Salton Sea just uh, for their airstrip and to do all the, the loading up of the airplanes and stuff like that, because there was uh, a need to be flying over the actual Salton Sea when we did that kind of stuff. So, and, and in and around town, 
a lot for like a lot of the shill runs, but a lot of it was out in uh, in Agua Dulce, and then the airstrip was in Salton Sea. We learned from our mistakes too. So first season, we 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 did it right. We kind of went to Vegas at the end, and we did like a really quick like twenty four hour shoot in Vegas. Season two, we went to Vegas right in the middle of the season, which was really hard. And the reason behind that was in the season in the story, he goes to Vegas in the in those episodes. So we went and actually did a, a shoot in Vegas, which was really hard to go to Vegas, shoot, 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 then come back, you know, while you're filming, we had like four different directors that had to rotate through. So after that, we were like, okay, going in the middle of the season is really tough. We're not like a normal network show that airs. Uh, we're not hitting an air date. They haven't decided when we're air date. So the next season, and anytime we went on location, we we always orchestrated it that we'd go at the end. And then I think the season after that, we went to um, Catalina Island. Then we went to Borrego Springs and then we went to Salton Sea. So we always kind of do it at the end. And it became like a like a farewell kind of to the crew. We'd all go on location for one last kind of like hurrah and stuff like that. So it was kind of fun. Yeah, and a there is a place like Salton Sea. Salton Sea. Was, I know there's a book <laughs> where he goes to, to Macau, China. We kept trying to push that we would do that, but they didn't they didn't bite on it yet. That became Monterey Park. <laughs> Monterey Park. <exactly. laughs> that season. We're like, yeah. oh. We couldn't get that realism in, but we mm-hmm. tried. Yeah. Any other favorite locations or or challenging sequences on this? I mean, again, with six seasons or even, you know, the seventh season for all of you, there's a lot to draw on. But what are the ones that really stick in your minds that you want to tell that story? Well, shooting under the in the subway system was a thing. And that was something that we tested really extensively before we did it. And that test was a hint at how hard it was going to be to work down there. And we had to extend the existing subway ends at hundred yards or something. We had to make it feel like it kept going. So we had to figure out, you know, could we do some vanishing point tricks with lights and things like that to make it seem like it was a longer tunnel than it really was. And would we get away with that? The advantage of that was it was directed by Ernest Dickerson, who's a famous, wonderful cinematographer who used to shoot for Spike Lee and he's an amazing director. And so it was, you know, when he tells you it's going to be a certain way, it's going to be that way. And so when we were able to test that and and, um, and figure out a look for that, that's very film noir. And but yet yeah, getting down into, into a closed tunnel with a full company is a bit of a thing. You need you need people who are um, ready to do that. Luckily, we have that crew. Yeah, Vegas stands out for me, too, because not only were Robert and his team able to get us access to massive places in L.A., the the access they gave us in Vegas was insane. We went to, like, the security room in the Aria, and we watched them watch poker play. You know what I mean? Like, dude, there was, like, this bank of monitors, and we're really in there getting to see them watch people for cheating and all this kind of stuff and just filming on the strip, you know, just driving on the strip, and we would – uh, just go right in the middle of the traffic and get out there. And then Titus would drive along aside everybody for that realism. And just uh, being able to be within those places was pretty impressive in its own right. And getting into the underbellies of the casinos and walking through um, the backstages and stuff. And then Angel's Fight stands out. I think no matter what we do, at least in my opinion, through our six seasons, that was probably the most iconic shoot for us. It just, we spent so much time there to be able to shoot it at night during day. It had been closed down for years. So to be able to really be on it, travel on it, ride on it and do all those things was, was, was a pretty, was something that will always stick in my head, you know, memorably. And for folks who haven't seen it, Angel's Flight is the cable car that goes up the hill in yeah. downtown L.A. And uh, like we said, spoilers, but there's a murder. And, but you guys so you yeah. guys were all over that location for the whole season. 
For me, it's, it's a, not so much a specific location because they're all my babies and yeah. I don't like to pick a uh, favorite. But for <laughs> season one is my favorite season. And the reason why is that this show has been on so long that L.A. has changed so dramatically in the seven years. And and for me, that really captures the L.A. that I loved and knew and all that. And, you know, the Sixth Street Bridge, we shot a man point blank in a vase underneath there. And that bridge doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Sun Chemical down there. A lot of those warehouses are now condominiums and lofts and things like that and uh la's not known for uh preserving its buildings and a lot of things have been torn down and newer things have been built so i mean that's progress but uh but uh, the first season really you know I, in fact we're, we're for the spinoff we're doing now we have this location we're going to shoot and i and i turned to peter Yan and said this is a season one location he's like oh yeah yeah it's alleys and fire escapes and rooftops and things like that and it was just cool so that would be my my favorite I think for me, it was, you know, the morgue, uh, we actually shot at Cal State where they actually have to do the bullet test, the forensics and all that stuff. And, you know, we're actually going into where the sheriffs or the LAPD will fire bullets into the water so they can do caliber tests or matching, all sorts of stuff. So we've been a lot of cool, cool places that you don't get access to that you get to see, but it's probably shooting in the gang areas. One season we had, and I'll have to ask Robert that the street we were on, but essentially we had gone there during the day and it was always a little rowdy in the day. Robert, what part of town 54th, is this? 54th, I think, 45th or 54th, I forget, it's on that way. And, and so the yeah. yeah, so the interesting thing, we had a night scene there. And so we were moving from a day scene to this place. And then our key second, Parker uh, Clemente, is over there early. And even when we go there during the day, you know, it was colorful characters. They had a little a market there. They had like a little two markets across from the street. And there was mm-hmm. kind of a division there. And one street actually had a marker out there where they do quarter mile racing. And, you know, it's an urban neighborhood. And they had like a little pizza place next to it and little shops. So it was kind of interesting. It wasn't a lot. And then Parker calls and says, well, we've had something going on. And they were actually having a wake across the street. It was like this classic pet store that was probably from the 60s and it was like hand-painted signs and apparently the owner of that had died and so you know Robert has locations people down there we're supposed to be keeping stuff clear but essentially what happened was that I don't know how much Robert wants to say but Robert hires people to kind of protect us but at one point it kind of started getting a little hairy down there because we were in their neighborhood trying to film and cars were pulling up for this wake and they were you know drinking was happening and it was a surreal moment at one point a guy drives by on electric or actually a motorized bicycle and smoke is pulling up and he's wearing like this face hockey mask and the smoke is just putting everywhere and it's you know it's like two o'clock in the morning i call frankie i go it's kind of feeling a little hairy here (laughs) patrick you were there for that right i was i was starting to think of um all the stories my technician friends had, because I came up working in music videos in the 90s. And I was like, oh, is this one of those things where we're going to wish that the condor has, you know, plywood in it in case shooting starts happening? You know, if they start shooting up the lighting to make us go home, the neighborhood, you know, not wanting you there. And that's a rare occurrence on our show to, to feel a neighborhood say, look, we're having a wake here. We don't want you here. You should go. And it was, it was like, oh, we should shoot and get out of here. We should respect this neighborhood and, and leave. And so at one point, literally, we have our officers with us. And all of a sudden, I turn, and there's like eight or six gang officers com- coming down because they could hear the screaming and yelling. And I go, what are you guys doing here? They go, oh, we're just on a 
um, they were doing surveillance down the street and they came over because they heard all the screaming and yelling. So it was a little tense there. And at one point, you know, I had to like tell the director, we got to shoot, we got to go. And I had called Frankie, like it was like two o'clock in the morning. And he goes, if it's bad, just pull the plug, go home. But Robert does hire people in the neighborhood that knows the gangs and the politics. But, and I'll let Robert talk to that in a minute about that. But the funny thing is that, you know, it was tense. We got out of there and I was like, because, you know, ultimately I'm responsible for everybody's safety. And you have no idea what's going to happen. So we got out of there and in typical boss fashion, we decided we need to write a scene about that and put it in next year. So we had to go, <laughs> we had to go back down there, recreate that scene. It was and so memorable. Episode. We had to get our own guy on a motorized bicycle to drive around <laughs> and harass the characters in, in the exact same spot. So yeah. we created our own wake, put our mm. own guy on a motorcycle. Like it's just the silly things that we do. And, and then the reason to, why it was, no, no, I was like, to be fair at the, at, when we were, when we came back, emotions were way, there was way more welcoming. Obviously we, we caught them at a bad time the first time we got there and it was a very lovely experience. I know a lot had to do with Robert and his connections, the people down there and all that stuff. And they made us, they made us, they were very welcoming and made us feel very safe the second time around. Yeah. Yeah. That was an anomalous situation. We filmed yeah. in South Los Angeles and other areas, uh, uh, in East Los Angeles areas that people are stereotypically considered, Oh, bad parts of the neighborhood, but 90% of the people welcome us with open arms. And, uh, uh and I do like to hire, uh, neighborhood liaisons, as we like to call them, people who, and a lot of these guys were maybe gangsters back in the day. The 90s, 80s gangster lifestyle, you know, isn't isn't the same. But these guys now are respectable and they have jobs and they kind of, they're, they're uh, um, technicians for us. And, and I, I literally have a map. There's a great Google map, the gangs of Los Angeles, because, and you will know, I mean, if the issue with that specific location is the south side of the street was Crips and the north side of the streets were bloods and we had hired our friends in the Crip neighborhood. And then the people who came up were bloods. And then when we turned to them to say, hey, can you go talk to those guys? They're like, oh no, <laughs> we can't go talk to those guys. <laughs> so it was just one of those things like, okay, now I know I have to hire both. So that's when I the, the map became very popular. But uh, um, but no, most of the, that was a great neighborhood. I, there's some people that I still kind of reach out to every once in a while. And uh, um, one of, in fact, Iron Man, uh, who was the guy who was with us that night and then the following night who passed away last year. And, and uh, you know, and there's just, you just realize there's a life out there that, uh, you know, we try to capture, but it's reality. And we're just making a silly TV show sometimes. Well, and I think that the show was eye-opening for me personally. There were places that I wouldn't think to go to. Like Lemur Park is never an area I ever thought I would visit in, in Los Angeles. It's kind of towards the airport and stuff like that. And we filmed down there and there's this amazing bookstore. I still order books from there today. There's an amazing coffee shop that's right there. You get kind of like lost in like your own little areas because LA is, is big and it's so diverse and there's a lot of different, it's quadrants, right? Like you got like blocks of like your little areas and you stay in, you don't realize what's out there and what's there's so much more the show was eye-opening and you you'd sometimes you know years ago you'd think oh I, i'm not going to go down in an area like that and then you go and you film in the area like that and you realize that it's, it's humanity and you know they're they're respectful you're respectful and it just be, it's, it's it, it was a, it was a nice experience in that aspect you know uh just to to kind of learn about the different communities and to be in the different communities because we never were in the same one twice we went all over and met all all sorts of folks from every walks of life from religions and races and it was it was uh it was, and the, the show encapsulated that a lot too and it was it was uh it was educational for me it was great like it was just i just felt um there's so much of this city that 
you know, I lived here for 12, 13 years before I did Bosch. I, and so, and I had, there's, I'd only gone to the same places, you know what I mean? It, was, it never, the, 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 the show was eye-opening to me to all those really great places around the city that it's, it's okay to go to, that they're, we're all neighbors. It's important that it, it taught me that coming from Arizona and stuff like that. You guys had a lot of crew consistency, as you alluded to earlier. What, with the challenge of the show, what do you think was the special sauce that kept so many people coming back season after Me? season? <laughs> I take full responsibility for it. I was going to say oh, a, lot of, a lot of them came back for season seven, so I don't know. <laughs> I, was I, was I wasn't there. You Shit, left. it wasn't me. Then I left. In fact, I think a few came back that were that left. But anyway. <laughs> um. I think it was global. I, you know, we all, like, as you can see, like the, the four of us here are friends, you know, and that's, that's rare, especially after you get sick of each other on shows, especially on long jet, you know, seven years of a show and people come and go, but we, we got to know each other as, as not only, you know, workers, but just, just socially. And, and you start to respect each other and you want to come back and, 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 and work with each other. And I think that became it. It's like, we all respected each other. We all treated each other respected everyone's voice and and i think that that goes a long way it's it's a hard job no matter we've all been we've got thousands and thousands of hours and years of not thousands of years but decades of, of experience we've all worked with different people and i know skid you've been in this business and i know you've dealt with some of the personalities and there's a lot out there so to find a group of people that you really enjoy and look the best part is, is we could get chippy with each other and then realize in the next day that it's over with it. it you know, everyone always says, Oh, it's the best crew. I have a family. It was more than that, you know, because look, I don't hang out with every one of them, but we talked to each other. And I think that's the most important. We communicated with each other. There wasn't, none of us felt we couldn't come, you know, air our grievances and or our problems and we would all solve them together. And that goes from everyone, not just the four of us here, but our other AD team, you know, we, Ian Callip and Gene and our second, second J and then, uh, you know, Robert's team to Brad to, you know, and, and, and Patrick's whole team from his camera department. We keep mentioning Danny Brown, Danny Brown's our wonder kid. You know, he started out as our film utility loader and he started operating. He's working for me now in Picard. I stole him. You know what I mean? So it's just like, we, it's just that kind of thing because you just get this group and it's, and I think, I think a lot of it was the people because it was a hard show. People, there was definitely easier shows out there, but every, there wasn't one person, at least in my opinion. And look, I'm the producer. So there was, people are different to me than they are to everybody else. But I know that wasn't the case here. I know that everybody treated each other with respect and I tried to do that as well. And so did Jamie uh, Boscard Martin, who is my partner, our other co-producer and Peter Yan. And Peter Yan's a taskmaster and he's tough, but he respects everybody. And we all know that what he is hard as he can be to push us to do the best we can. That's what he's doing. He's pushing us to be the best we can, even though it drives us, it's hard. You know, as we used to joke, there's the comment, you know, we don't do anything because we shouldn't do anything because it's convenient, right? We, we should do it because it's the right way to do it, the right thing to do. And I don't know, I'm going on a tangent, but I think it, it, I think it comes down to just everybody wanting to just continuously be together. Uh, going off Frankie's point here, which I've seen throughout the years, is that, you know, I showed up, no one knew me. I had worked with Peter Yan years ago, but like literally when I first saw him, it was like, we hadn't seen each other in 15 years, but I'll never forget. I was like my second day there, Michael Connolly, who I had read his books, you know, kind of just came up to me and said, Hey, Trey, I'm Michael Connolly. 
I want to say thank you for coming in and helping us out. And then like Henrik Bastian said something and Eric Overmeyer. So when you have producers and showrunners and people at the top, I've seen them do this to PAs. I've seen them to do it. And I saw Michael Conley do this to someone the other day. It was saying, you know, thank you for coming in and helping us out. It just goes a long way. It's amazing to be on set with him. And here he is surrounded by everyone making these books he's created from nothing, from thin air. And we're making them real. And he is so collaborative and open. And of course, he's a genius writer. So every now and then, if you get caught and the scene could use a little something, he has such great ideas and they just come like really quickly. And at the same time, he's glad that you're there and it's all working. It's, it's a, it goes a huge yeah, Trey's absolutely right. That goes I mean, a long way. I, I've been on shows and it's just like the producers, they feel like you owe them something. Like it's the, you should be happy you're there. And our producers, you know, Frankie on up feel like, oh, we're lucky to have these people. That's overall guidance. I mean, I know Robert feels that way. I mean, Robert won um, the location manager of the year. Was it last year, the year before? No, I'm serious. Like, <laughs> 2019. And yeah. because of the pandemic, I got to hold that title for two years. So, yeah. uh, so I was pretty happy. Is <laughs> it a belt that you... <laughs> yeah. But it's like, you know, I mean, having this producer support really elevates us all and, and at least makes you want to come to work. Yeah, and just to speak on Michael Connolly, yeah, he is, I mean, it's like he's a rock star. I mean, he's got a fan base that is so deep, and it's the reason why this show is so successful is that there's so many people who want to watch the show. I have to admit, I had never heard of Bosch before I started on the show, and and I was like, oh, it's this little books, okay, and then I would go out scouting, and I and say, well, I'm working to show Bosch. People are like, Bosch, come on in. This is great. Oh, yeah, and then police officers, you know, it's like I feel like now I can be pulled over and say, I leave my dashboard. I leave my show card on the dashboard. It says Bosch. So in case I get pulled over and guys go, oh yeah, Bosch. Not that's ever happened. You know, and it just speaks to the kind of person Michael Connolly is too, because people just love him and they, and, uh, and the police love him and LA Times loves him, I think. I don't know. And uh, it spreads out through the whole show. He's a good guy because he's a good guy. We all are good, try to be good guys and be like Michael. So. And so how did your cast fit into all of this? Because this is a hard show, right? And you're talking about the crew coming together, but sometimes cast can be separate from that. Sometimes cast is really integrated in that for better or worse as well. And they were definitely integrated. I'll give Titus uh, a lot of credit for the, I think, cohesiveness of, of the crew because he became friends with everybody as well. And he knew everybody's name, which is rare and not to, to knock actors, but sometimes they come in they do their job and look, they have a, a hard job in their own right. They, you know, they have to be in a certain headspace and then they move on. They don't really get to know everybody. Titus knew everybody everybody he had his own little things with everybody you know i he texts me to this day he's bummed i'm not there like he just uh he's one of the greats he really is he's an insane fan of film his film knowledge is almost unmatched he's fun to talk movies with he does little ticks and if you watch bosh he does a shoulder tick a lot and that's you know tashiro mafune he's like all in on that stuff there's little sight gags that he does with with the the the, the dog coltrane is straight out of like the road warrior he would that was a big thing for him to get a, a blue healer dog to um there's even a shot at the end of that season that's from the thing where there's the dog in the shadow like and that's all him and Ernest and Patrick and everybody just trying to infuse their there. It's funny because this show is not like a, an Easter eggy geeky kind of show because it's a cop drama, 
but there's a lot of Easter egg geeky people on the show that are trying to put all that stuff in <laughs> that people do catch. Like when they watch it, they're like, Oh my God, like, that's a kind of a thing right there. And, uh, and he was a blast. And what was it? What was interesting to go back to like Madison, I think when Madison who plays the Maddie, his daughter, she's prominent in the books. I don't know if they ever had a plan to make her more prominent from the season one, you know, cause season two, she wasn't, but you saw this connection between the two of them as every time they were together on screen. And, and, and I know Eric and, Peter Yan and Hendrick and everyone's like there's something there we need to capitalize on that so she obviously grew like her character grew their connections grew and that was a very important thing and then Jay Edgar he's, he's my favorite Titus I'll tell Titus he's my favorite but Jay Edgar uh you know um Jamie Hector <laughs> the the loveliest i love him so much you, you know talk family with him it's funny anywhere we were in the street like uh people under people recognized him from from the wire i remember we were filming downtown once and um we wanted this camera position inside this store uh it's not something i think that we had initially planned on the scout or anything like that it's just one of those organic things that came up it'd be cool if we could put this camera right here and so um someone went in i'm not sure if it was robert or peter on to ask if we could go in there and shoot and the owner of the store said, yes, if Jamie Hector comes in and signs my wire poster, you know, like they saw him and he came in, signed it, and they <laughs> gave us the spot and we shot it, you know. And then Lance, the great Lance Reddick, the best posture in the history of television, you know, the guy's amazing. And Amy Aquino, we just, and even Creighton Barrow, who I think were voted like some of the ten, top 10 best side characters in television. It was a great group. They're so much fun. We had a blast with every one of them. I grew, I built a relationship with them because I was the second AD for a season. So they kind of were able to know me. A lot of production managers do sit in this, in the, in the office and they're not as hands-on. I like to feel that I was more hands-on than, than the average bear. Um, but I had built a relationship with them prior because of being on set and being the AD. So when I moved forward uh, and I moved up and Peter Young promoted me and stuff like that, I was able to still remain, keep that connection with them. And, I, and to this day, there's no other cast members in my 20 some odd years of television or and features that I still talk to except for the cast of Bosch. And I think what happened is that when, when you have a number one that, you know, is a nice guy and is a good actor. I mean, that's another thing too. It's funny. It's these actors have to come prepared. They need to know their lines, bring something uh, because again, back to logistics, we're three location moves. We don't have a lot of time to sit down and do rehearsals. And also Titus knows his lines. You know, Frankie and I worked on another show, Longmire, and they actually had rules that when you came to work as an actor, then bring your phone, do certain stuff. And ultimately we kind of used that last year because of COVID and good actors draw good actors. So I think it's, you know, we've had some great actors and it's just because of Lance and Jamie and Titus and Amy. And, and again, it's, you know, they know they're going to get their, featured well. They're not going to look like an idiot. They're not going to be something, you know, sometimes you'll do these network TV shows and it's like, oh my God, they use that take or whatever. Whereas this was an actor show. So I think that's really helped out the casting. Yeah. The material is strong and the, the cast is deep and they've got each other's backs. And I cannot imagine anyone, but Titus and Jamie as those characters, they're just so perfect and so good together. Yeah, it's just a, it was a real treat all the time to see all these performances and the depth at which people are thinking about those parts and the things they're thinking about. It's not just, it's not just surface work, you know, they're coming in really prepared. It's huge. And the crew sees that. And then suddenly, you know, everything's starting to stack on itself. You're trying to build that 
it's like pushing something downhill and it just gets gains momentum because everyone is seeing everyone's come to work and likes being there. It's a big deal. Turning our attention to season seven, we're not going to do any spoilers, but what should people be watching for in this new season? Uh, Surprises. <laughs> Every other episode is freaking awesome. So, uh, no, he can take that as a compliment or not. I don't know. Oh my God, <laughs> because we yeah. have two directors. <laughs> no, they're well, all great. I, no, Patrick took the full butt of horns and he's directing. And, and that's kind of awesome to see uh, him be a director. Uh, you know, it was great to work with a director who was a DP on the show and knew what we needed and how it works. And, and sometimes it's uh, hard you know, and sometimes I'm, you know, can be their, the bane of their existence with a location, but the flexibility he showed as a director is, you know, pretty awesome. So I know that's not necessarily on the screen and maybe you're looking for, but uh, um, I was very happy to see Patrick as the director uh, last season. So I have to pay Robert a lot of money right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, when well, I looked down, I saw my Venmo went dang. I'm like, okay, okay you're All right. yeah, yeah. I can talk good. Uh, I have to say that uh, I don't, it does, it, uh, it's veering away from that question into the idea of the show again, but the brain trust is what I always call it. It's that small group as a cinematographer, you hope you're part of, and as a director you need, and there's like four key people standing around the monitors, looking at the performances with you as the director. And it's Trey, who's another director. So you've got an AD who's a director and it's the writer or the writer who's covering all the episodes and knows everything about the show. So any little question comes up, you're going to get the answer to that. And then it's the cinematographer being right there with you too, so that everyone knows what the scene is about, what you're trying to get to and can be guided to it. Then your job is not to screw it up as the director. Your, your job is to, well, okay, what's the one sentence I should say to the one person about the scene that'll make it better. And if there isn't anything to say, I should shut up and let them, let them do their thing, which I'm get, trying to get better at. Uh, season seven had its own challenge because of COVID. You know, we had a lot of things and we learned along the way. And so we really had to adapt our production, the way we handled it and did logistics. And so I think what's exciting about the show is that hopefully you'll watch it and you won't really see anything from an outside perspective that's changed but just knowing that a lot of times we were it was really tough getting things you know location i mean we had to everything we talked about for six years we had to do double we had to like lock locations even further down and i think season seven so with the logistics and all the stuff being difficult i think we were able to pull off stuff and it's really you don't know where the series is going to go you know, you start off in one direction and by the end of the series, it, it's gone in three different directions. And I think that's going to be exciting for the if people can, oh, I knew that was going to happen. No. Oh my God, that happened? Without saying too much, it's really Bosch. It's a different season versus the other six. Yeah. Uh, Story-wise, that, is that people going into the season, fans thought this was going to be the last we were going to see of Bosch. And so the stories are pretty storylines are pretty intense for some of the characters this season as as the story moves along we have storylines had to be tied up i mean the show's been going for seven seasons and and characters have developed i mean people who are just background characters have become you know integral to the show and everyone is treated even-handedly and it's also a little shorter a couple of episodes shorter that uh this past season but now i think the fans can watch it knowing like okay this is really now telling the story of you know where we're going where 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 is the storyline going to go beyond this. And, uh, and they will get a, I think, a satisfying uh, um, transition from what Bosch is and what Bosch will become. 
it's the gift that you're shooting the final season. You know, it's the final season. That's a real gift. I've only had it on one other show and it made a difference on that show too. And, and suddenly all bets are off on what's going to happen to who and where, where the show's going to go. So <laughs> that's what I would say to the audience is buckle up, get ready and pace yourself. Cause there's only eight episodes. So it, you know, I, it's going to be hard not to binge the whole thing in like a weekend, but you know, <laughs> spread it out a little. <laughs> Well, fans will also be relieved to know because it's not a secret anymore. And Robert, you alluded to it. There is going to be a spinoff. And what I've read in the description, that's all I know about it, that Bosch, now retired, works as an investigator for defense attorney Honey Chandler, who, as folks know, has been antagonist and an ally of our our main character over the course of these uh, seven seasons. Trey, you probably have more of this fresh in mind than any of us. I I mean, I've read the first uh, script, but... I was going to let Robert take this question. Well, I mean, I think we're all nervous in our seat because actually the description you read is greater than the description I've been privy to. I mean, I've always <laughs> only read the, as we go on to the next chapter of Bosch's uh, life. Uh, I think people you know who read the books, the fans who read the books, knows the direction that this character has taken over the course of his career. I mean, really in reality of the 20 some odd books, you know, a minority portion of them, Bosch is a Hollywood police detective, if I correct. And he has, he's been a consultant with other police departments, been a private eye. He's done a bunch of different things. I think what's going to be interesting, we are definitely using future books always. I mean, you gotta, you know, gotta go to source materials. I mean, we all know Game of Thrones tanked when they stopped (laughs) using the books. So, uh, uh, so we will always use Michael's books, but uh, you know, listen, Mimi Rogers is a character, you know, and one of my favorite seasons as well is when, but I forget which was four or five were, Bosch had to hire her as his attorney. Yeah. And that was just great. I'm like, oh, this is great because they hate each other. And so that dynamic, I think, is going to be great in this this season. Um, and Maddie, you know, her character grew and, you know, she's got a lot of great stuff that's going to happen. So, yeah, I'll speak in pronouns and adverbs, but uh, it's going to be a pretty good season. Madison has really risen as an actor as mm-hmm. we've watched her grow up on the show and and see her and Titus working together is always really wonderful. I mean, the one thing I guess we can talk to is this is not Bosch eight. This is a Bosch spinoff. And so we did make some changes, you know, unfortunately Frankie took most of the Bosch crew anyway. So we had to make (laughs) changes. Um, So we have new DPs. Zetna Fuentes is our pilot director and I was just reading the press release to make sure I didn't get in trouble. So we know that Titus Welliver is coming back as Bosch. We know Madison Lentz is coming back and we know uh, Mimi Rogers is coming back. So it's gonna have a bit of a more female centric point of view versus then a male point of view. So obviously Bosch will always be Bosch, but it's our first episode. We definitely are following the other characters a little more than we would. And you'll understand that after you see season seven and back to Robert's point, at the end of season seven, you'll see some clarity what's going to happen with the Bosch spinoff. The other thing, too, is so we've brought in some new departments. And, and the idea is to make, you know, there's DNA of Bosch that people love. So, you know, we'll see some familiar locations in it. And then we're going to see a lot of new locations in it. And visually, it's going to be a little different looking. But yet again, you're always going to know that what's great about it is because I actually did a pilot. Uh, in Atlanta and starting off fresh, you have to establish the worlds and establish the characters. What's nice about this is that we're getting a fresh start and these characters are all going different directions. 
and we bring in, you know, some of the new people in our department, a new costume department. We're having our same uh, grip department back and a new electric department. And, and a lot of it's just some people, have, like I said, Frankie has taken or they've got on a, a project. So there's going to be a new fresh look to this and, and we're all excited. I mean, we're literally in the process of pre-production. So ultimately we won't really know what it, this is going to look like until we finish that first episode. And then Patrick's going to come in and um, do episodes two and four. And so it's exciting. We're all, we're still learning and figuring out as Robert can tell you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice balance. Like I said, I think I said earlier that there was a location to remind me of season one, but then there's also locations we never would have dreamed of going into in seasons two through seven, because the stories would never take us to those types of locations. And that's, what's kind of cool. It's a different case. It's not, you know, someone got murdered somewhere in Hollywood and things get spinned off. It's like, uh, you can be go deeper and go with different types of characters and that kind of stuff. So you'll see new types of characters coming in and out. Well, I guess it'll be another year before we see it. Um, it's actually not on Amazon prime, but on IMDb pro channel prime, I'm not completely familiar with how that's all set up. Is there going to be anything different about actually viewing it or, or it's access to folks? Yeah. I, it's interesting because I mean, originally the way it was pitched is that IMDb TV, if you go on there, they do have shows right now, but they want to get into the streaming AVOD business, advertise video on demand. And so we will have breaks in it. Now, how specific, you know, we are writing for breaks and we're completely outside the bubble. So we were dealing with a new studio as well, which is a big change for us because we have to learn that whole process. And originally I was told that they wanted to use this to launch IMDb TV. So I think, the idea is, you know, and Frankie might have known more about this because he follows better, but I think they want to do original content for IMDb yeah. TV and, and grow that because everybody wants to get into AVOD. Advertising video on demand is like the next big thing. Everybody's. It's funny to well, me, the like next big thing is television with ads. Free <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> TV, guys. It's come full circle, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. The horrible five-act structure, I hope, doesn't come Gen back. Gen Z's like, Dad, wrong. Dad, there's, I, you know, what are these there's things? free television. Well, my, my son actually likes commercials. I don't know, that's because he's never had commercials. You know, it was always sure. Netflix or something. He's going, these commercials are great. Being in pre-production has been sort of a challenge in that IMDb TV is owned by Amazon. So you keep thinking like, well, we're Amazon, but it's not. We're a different studio. We're different, you know, so and we have to keep telling everyone it's the new show. There is no last season we did this. I mean, even to the, the getting the new shows, like W9s that accounting doesn't have that we've played people we've paid for seven seasons. And we have to go back to them, the, you know, the owner of the Bosch house and say, hey, we need your W9 again because uh, we don't have it. Um, so so it is new. Like you said, it's ad supported. So they'll know that. And, uh, and I think that is the thing. It's a popular show. It got a lot of people. My understanding is the reason why, you know, it went beyond transparent and all those critical darlings is because people of a certain age even would sign up for Amazon Prime to watch our show. And it was the number one new subscriber draw. And I think they can take that and slide it over to another division and hope that that will bring people over too, um, especially people who are want to see it without ads. But eventually my understanding is it will be on Amazon Prime too. It just will show in a weekly basis, dropping week by week on IMDb TV. And then after that, at some point it'll be on Prime. Well, when that show comes out, I hope all of you will come back and talk about it, except for you, Frank, since obviously- Yeah, I won't be there. With it, that's, uh, <laughs> but the rest we'll of you, Jamie. please. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess in that, Trey, you said something earlier. And I guess my final question for you guys, because you're all friends. So besides stealing a lot of your crew to go work on Picard, is there anything else Frank did to make season seven harder for you guys? Like sort of in his departure? <laughs> um, well, now we, finding I got paid the whole time when I didn't. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> we, we, since he had left, I had voted or I, I kind of pushed the boat to have him in fantasy football and he was like, at first, he was like, no, no, I don't belong there. And so like private text message, I said, stop being a wimp, just play with us. And so probably the biggest thing was we played fantasy football with him last year so that we kept connection with him, but he still complained about the season. Yeah. So <laughs> to give context, we created a Bosch fantasy football league and it was a lot of different crew members. So yes, I departed the show. So we thought it was the final season. I went on to another show for three seasons because uh, that happens in this business. And then I didn't know of a spinoff at the time. Uh, so it's a little bittersweet. I'm not there with these guys in the final season. It was kind of tough. But when the when we were getting ready to do this new uh, fantasy football league season, I was like, well, I should bow out. I mean, I'm not, it's the Bosch league. I'm not on there. And Trey's like, you will always be part of Bosch. This is your league too. And you're going to be on it. Then you might have called me a couple of subject, you know, little bad words after. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely did call me some. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, this has been a real pleasure talking about. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And be sure to check out season seven on Amazon Prime when it debuts tomorrow. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And also please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners. New listeners, it's easy to peruse all of our back episodes on the website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Blow the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at podblowthelineoneword. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Take care and join us again next week for a new episode of Borrow the Line. Hey, are the sirens on my side? Is that me? Not I me. hear it. Yeah, it's not on it's not on my side. That's that's Ken and Tim. <laughs> you heard us talking about them. I live near a firehouse, so it's an occasional thing we can't. Uh... That was the other bonus of the uh, the police parking lot is the fire trucks also go through it. So <laughs> yes, can't stage anything where you might want to stage it. No. Yeah, it's right next to a firehouse, so then those gates open and and the, usually they go out the front, but they would come in the back. You know, hook and ladders, everything. Sheriff vehicle, sheriff buses that are picking up the uh, the jail people, jail inmates, I should say. And for we also like to go to that too. We we employed a lot of like real police officers in uniforms, um, especially when we were in that parking lot. And and they made a decision the the LAPD, which I thought was smart for us not to dress extras and have them walking around back there because it is a a, a live you know real life police station. Hmm. So they said, well, we'll we started, which was good for them too. Is it, it was you know extra money for those guys and all that kind of stuff too. But so any anyone in a uniform you ever see walking around within the uh, exterior police station is a real police officer we tried to utilize them a lot on our crime scenes as well um we had a a a, a sign-up sheet that tim our you know 
our uh, tech advisor and Mitzi would get some of the, you know, when they were off duty, they'd come and uh, sign up for us. And it was always tricky because you never knew if we needed eight real life police officers would be great. And on the day we might end up only getting four because they got called into duty or something like that. And we just, we just worked around it. We did whatever we could. We were happy to have them when we, when we could. I'm going to take a quick aside, Frank. I think I hear when you tap the desk for emphasis. So oh, just, as a, just, just as a warning, that's, um, that's okay. not necessarily bad, but people might wonder. It's been warned. Warm. I've been warned. <laughs> sitting that's on my one, hands. Trey one strike. So we, will, we, will reca- we will recast you and redo the podcast if we need to on this. That's, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I think Trey I said, um, about 182 times. So you're going to have some editing to do there. So I was trying to keep a can. That tapping was me actually tick marking every time he did it. Just so you know. I, 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 like I, I said it more than 10 times. <laughs> I think I might have said it more, to be honest with you. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out because I said it in my mind and then started talking afterwards. Oh, he's such a jerk. I swear to God, this guy. He's just got a face like a jerk. He's got a face like a jerk. <laughs> when you want to do a Picard one, we can kick these guys out. I'll bring some other dudes. It'll be oh, great. Cool. I'll bring all the guys from Bosch that I took over. That'd be great. Yeah. Oh, that'd, that'd be awesome. awesome. 